There is a hymn in our Psalter hymnal that we will, Lord willing, sing after the preaching of God's holy word, and it is called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And if I may go into the tradition of our dear brother Jim, let me tell you a few words about the author, William Cooper, not Cowper, but Cooper. For some reason, it is pronounced Cooper, although you write Cowper. William Cooper spent most of his life in severe depression and anxiety. He was very much troubled for most of his life, and I'm sure he often asked himself, why? Why is this happening to me? Well, as we look back, as we look into Psalter hymnals and hymnals in this country, we get an idea why only a man who has seen the depths of desperation as close as he has, close to desperation, can write hymns like this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Only a man who has been in the darkness of these minds knows what he's writing about. And this evening, Lord willing, we will be talking about Lord's Day number 10, about the providence of God. And I would urge you to listen very closely because this is an utterly important topic, not only for those in our congregation who are in distress right now, who are suffering right now, but for everybody. Because if you're not suffering right now, if you're not chastised right now, you will. Because darkness and pain and chastisement are God's choice instruments to polish his diamonds, to bring his fruits to fruition, to blossoming. And it is part of the Christian life. Let us therefore turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 and verses 5 through 17. Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 17. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Reading about Joseph, we read, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept a saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. 
And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. As far the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing to the preaching thereof. Let us briefly review the content of what we have just read in God's holy word. It all begins basically with Joseph's two dreams, one about the sheaves and the other one about the sun, moon, and stars. And it is obvious that both of these dreams symbolize Joseph's superiority over his brothers. And his brothers get very angry and jealous, and even his father Jacob rebukes him for sharing those dreams with them. And eventually, Joseph's brothers go to pasture the flocks some distance away. And after some time, Jacob sends Joseph to look if everything is well with them and to see if everything is okay. And obedient son that he is, Joseph obeys, but he doesn't know exactly where his brothers are. And he would have probably never, ever found them if it wasn't for a nameless man in verse 15, where it says, And the man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and, you could say, indeed, found them at Dothan. You probably know how this story continues. Joseph finds his brothers, but they plot to kill him, and they throw him in a pit. And only after his brothers Judah and Reuben intervene, they change their plan, and they sell him to an Ishmaelite group of tradesmen, and they bring Joseph with them to Egypt, and they sell him there as a slave, his father's most beloved son. You know the rest of the story, I'm sure, how Joseph had to work in Potiphar's household, how God had blessed him, and how he rose to the top of Potiphar's household. And things looked great, but then Potiphar's wife accused him, falsely accused him, of an improper assault which he had never done. How he was thrown into prison, how he spent years there, Years in that prison until Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer were also jailed. And how he had risen within the jail and prison hierarchy to the top and he was appointed to serve them. And how he served the, the cupbearer and the baker well and how he interprets their dreams and 
Soon thereafter, the cupbearer of Pharaoh uh, was being released from prison, but he forgets all about Joseph. And there he was again in prison, alone and without hope. And it is exactly here where I want to freeze for a little while. Freeze the events like a, a, a frozen picture. Let us think about what is happening here. Here we're having a good kid. A good church kid. A kid that probably everybody liked who knew him. His father's favorite son. He's being sold by his brothers. Brought to Egypt in Potiphar's household. And then a silver lining on the horizon. He rises on top of the household. Everything looks well. And now God will have mercy upon me. Now my fate will turn. Boom. He's accused falsely of an assault that he never did. Thrown into prison and again God blesses him. And he rose to the top of the prison hierarchy. And now, now for sure God will help me. Now for sure God will turn all things. But no! He's forgotten. Left to rot in prison. And again, we're not talking a few weeks. We're not talking a few months. If you read quickly over it, you might think that. We're talking, most commentators think, seven to ten years. Prison's not like ours. No cable TV. No libraries. Just hardship. Dark hardship. These are the kind of situations, beloved, when a person is at a complete loss. These are the situations, and I think I can say with some justification, when you don't understand God anymore. These are the trials that can indeed send us into a tailspin, don't they? When we try to serve the Lord, when you try to walk in your ways, when you try to raise your children in the fear and nurture and admonition of your God, when you try to walk uprightly before the living God, and yet we end up in a dark alley without any exit in sight, without any hope. A situation like Jeremiah describes it in Lamentations chapter 3. And some of you can relate, I know. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Although here Jeremiah speaks prophetically, Ultimately, about the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was also talking about his own situation, which he really felt. He was talking also about his own circumstances, suffering and pain, almost to a point of utter despair. You have blocked me in. And it is exactly these kind of situations that the child of God might find itself at some day 
And it is exactly these situations into which Lord's Day seven of the uh, Lord's Day ten of the Heidelberg Catechism speaks, as it looks into the question of the root of all of our circumstances, especially the difficult ones. Or, in other words, we are tonight looking into the mystery of providence, and we will have only two points. First of all, the mystery explained. And since it's called a mystery, we can only explain so much about it. The mystery explained. And secondly, the mystery applied. This we can do. We can apply the mystery. Let us first look at the mystery itself, and let us try to explain it as much as we possibly can. Keep in mind we are still in the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. Gets a little bit complicated, like a box in a box in a box, right? The Heidelberg Catechism talks about the Scripture, but in it it talks now about the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed is boxed in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is kind of boxed in into the Scriptures. I hope you, you stay with me. We're still at this first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We have already talked about Last week, about God as the Almighty Creator who created the world and everything in it in six uh, 24-hour days. And while the Apostles' Creed does not expressly touch on the issue of providence per se, the Heidelberg Catechism wisely includes it, and that for a very good reason. Creating without upholding does not make any sense. It is impossible. Providence is the upholding. How can God create and not uphold? If he would only create and not uphold, the moment he created it, it would fall back into nothingness again. So upholding must be the logical uh, conclusion or the ongoing of creation. There is no existence. There is no time. There is no space, there is no life apart from God's upholding hand. If God would create and uphold, nothing would exist anymore. And therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism rightly and wisely teaches us in question 26, which we have looked at, that God not only created all things, but that he also upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. And now, in Lord's Day uh, 10, it zeroes in on this important doctrine. We have talked about the creation part. And now we'll talk about the upholding part, God's providence in Lord's Day 10. Question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? That's the question. And the answer is this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. You see, the Catechism speaks right away about 
the almighty and ever-present power of God. And thereby it connects back to what we have heard already, to God's almighty power, which we see in the created things. And it tells us the God that created all this out of nothing. Oh, he will be strong enough to be faithful to uphold and to govern all affairs in this creation. And we came to the conclusion as we looked closer at it, that if God were not almighty, I say were not almighty, he could also not be faithful because you cannot promise something that you are not powerful enough to keep. If he is an almighty creator, he is the almighty upholder as well. Only a God who can do whatever pleases him can promise whatever pleases him. We can promise many things. But truth be told, we can promise nothing. We don't know if we even have that next breath. We know nothing. We have no power. We cannot promise anything. And that's why we should say, if God will and I survive, then I will do this. If by God's providence I live tomorrow, I'm going to call you. Of course, we don't always say that. And we don't have to, but it should always be in our minds that all of our promises and all of our plans can only be carried out if God wills. We have no sovereignty whatsoever. We are creatures and not creators. So God is not only almighty, but it says he's also ever-present, and I'm going to speak foolishly now. But there would be no comfort for us if God were on the one side all-powerful but not ever-present. Then he would be the God of the deists, the great cosmic watchmaker who starts everything if it was possible. That's why I say I speak foolishly. If he would have started everything and then just leave it up to itself and do what you think. Take care of yourself. If you, if you end it all, you end it all. I'm out of here. Not only that it is impossible, it would be no hope if it was possible. As I said last week, that God is not a cosmic watchmaker who creates the world and then retires from it and lets it run on its own, which is, of course, logically impossible because there is no other source of energy, no other source of power than God. Every other power in this universe, every power whatsoever, small or large, can only be derived power and finds its root and its origin in the ultimate and most original causality, God. What the Heidelberg Catechism is teaching us here is that there is no such a thing as chance or coincidence. And that God actively not only upholds, but actively rules all things in heaven and on earth. But let us still consider for a minute what it really means when we talk about coincidence or chance, what the Bible thinks of it. There is an event, and there's several events where we can, which we could take, but there's a certain event in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 22, where well, we have the account of Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, going together uh, to battle against the king of Syria. 
And in verse 30 we read, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Let me tell you what happens here. He wants to trick the king of Judah to be mistaken for the king of Israel because he knew that the king of Syria wanted to kill him. And he also knew that the last standing prophet of the Lord, Micaiah, had prophesied that he, Ahab, would be killed in this battle. And he thought he can, he can just turn the corner and let the other guy die for him. And he could trick God. But then comes verse 34. Never forget this. But a certain man drew his bow at random, it said. You could say at will. And struck the king of Israel right between the scale armor and the breastplate. So here's a guy, whether he was frustrated or not, or what the reason was, he just took an arrow and took his bow and just shot it somewhere. And he hits Ahab at the only spot that was not covered by his armor. Now the world would call this a colossal coincidence. But we know better than this. That this was the active and intentional will and providence of the living God who made heaven and earth. This man shot his arrow as it pleased him, and yet without God, without God violating or overpowering his will, without God overpowering this intentional action, he was yet fully and in every detail carrying out God's will. That is not a coincidence. It is also not a contradiction. It might be a paradox, because we with our tiny minds cannot put these two things together, how a man can be free in doing what he wants to do, and at the same time, in every detail, carrying out God's will. And Spurgeon said, I think wisely, that these are two metals that cannot be hewn together on human anvils, but on heavenlies. This is the mystery. And this is why many people become Armenians. They say, no, we don't believe that God is sovereign. Because in our tiny minds, we cannot put those two metals together. How can man have a free will, not a sovereign will, a free will, and at the same time carry out God's will? We don't understand it, and therefore it is not true. We become Armenians. God is not sovereign. Now, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing as the liberals when they start questioning the Word of God. They're basically lifting up their own minds as the final arbiter of truth, even above the Word of God. The Word clearly teaches both. It teaches that man is free to do what he wills, not what he wants, but uh, what he is able to do, and yet he will carry out God's will to every detail. That's what this Word says. 
Now some people come along and say, I don't understand it, and I would like to understand it. Just to believe it is not enough for me. If I cannot understand it, it's not true. They're putting themselves above the Word of God and say, no. And that's how people fall either one side or the other side. The one fall on the Arminian side, that God is not sovereign anymore. The, other way, the others fall on the hyper-Calvinist side, which Spurgeon says is even more dangerous. Because they look at people as automatons. They look at the deterministic life that God is steering you actively against your will. And there's nothing you can do. You're just a pawn. But Scripture teaches both. And this is where the balance comes into the play. God is absolutely sovereign. He does whatever he wills. And man is free in his will. Not sovereign, but free. But also keep in mind, man with his free will will only do according to his heart. An unconverted heart, a heart of stone, will never do what is right. Will never want what is right. So man will always do according to his heart. And by default, man's hearts are fallen. It, it, it takes God's sovereign act to give him a new heart that he can finally see and want what is right. So if people come to me and say, I want to be a Christian, but I don't know how, what if I'm not elect? I said, you rest assured. If you weren't elect, you wouldn't want to be a Christian. So you have to understand that you can't understand. God does not ask us to understand his mind, but to trust him and to obey him. That is the proper reaction to God's word. And not to say in an enlightenment, which I would call endarkment method, to say what I don't understand is not true. Well, let's abandon the Trinity too then. We cannot understand it. Why don't we abandon the, the infinity principle from mathematics? Unless there is somebody here who understands it. Can you even, can you even imagine infinity in your mind? Well, you can't. Well, let's abandon it. Let's tell all the mathematicians not to use it anymore because only what we understand, that's true. And this is what I mean when I keep saying you have to put yourself under the Word and not above it. We're not called to understand the mind of God. We're called to understand what is revealed and to obey it and to trust Him. When a man abandons God, he has a lot of problems. He cannot make sense of life anymore. When the Western culture, in endarkenment, abandoned God, as it were, they had to come up with an alternative for providence. They couldn't make sense of things that were happening. They couldn't give comfort to anyone who was suffering. They had no answers, and so they invented coincidence and chance as a replacement for providence. What a pathetic existence, without any comfort, without any hope. But consider Isaiah 45. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That is God's answer to coincidence and to chance. Everything is covered and governed by God's hand. The Heidelberg Catechism mentions leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. 
and that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, this is remarkable, because the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism are making an important point here, that God's providence rules every detail, pleasant or unpleasant, and even the catastrophic ones. They're saying that, and they're all putting them alongside of each other. Leave and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years. They just want to make sure you understand. It's not only the pleasant things that come from the hand of God. It's also the unpleasant things. Also the very unpleasant things. And you might think, now, well, preacher, that's easy to say. Yes, it is. It really is. But that doesn't change the truth of it. It might be as easy as a walk in the spring. It is still the truth. All of your circumstances come from the fatherly hand of your God. And that is a fact. I don't know if I told you this before because I tell this story quite frequently. And I'm getting older. I become one of those who keep telling the same stories all over and over and over again. But I'm going to tell it to you again. Just uh, hope that it will be new for some of you. When I was in South Carolina, still in seminary. I think I was still in seminary. Who knows? And there was... I always think that church signs should be abolished because the most heresies that I see, well, either on Facebook or on church signs. Church signs was Facebook before Facebook was. And it was shortly after Katrina, and there was a church sign of a free will Baptist church that had written on it, Katrina, God didn't want it. What do you want to do with that? Is that you want to tell the people who were struck by Katrina, who lost loved ones? You're going to tell them, God didn't want it. Well, if I'm one of those who asked, then who wanted it? Somebody must have wanted it. Oh, coincidence. So here we have a church that has abandoned the providence of God and gone with the Enlightenment coincidence. Not only the good circumstances, also the unpleasant ones, and also the catastrophic ones, all come from the hand of God. And whether the, the world wants to stop their ears because they can't hear it or not is not of the issue. It is the truth. The word providence, you see, is connected from two uh, Latin words. Video. I see, and the prefix pro, before. But it doesn't mean foresee or in the sense of foreknowledge, but in the sense of provision. Or you could use the word provide. So providence and provide are connected. And the Bible reveals this concept for the first time explicitly in Genesis 22, when Abraham takes Isaac with him to the land of Moriah, and Isaac asks his father this heartbreaking question. My father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? For a burnt offering, he might have even smiled. Abraham said, I cannot imagine how he must have choked up in saying this to his son. God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And of course, God did provide in a most wondrous way. 
and kept Isaac alive, who was a type for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not kept alive for the sake of his people. Congregation, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence in its question 10 as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Very much in line with the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, the governing and ruling, or the preserving and governing is like the upholding and ruling. It's the same two concepts. He not only upholds, but he rules every detail. In other words, God rules everything. Every tiny detail. Without any exception. Now, if we consider all this, if we consistently consider what we have heard so far, this should change everything for us when it comes to our outlook, outlook on life, shouldn't it? Everything. Everything. If we truly believe that, it should change everything for us. It should change how we look at suffering. It should change how we look at, at good times. And that brings us to our second point, the mystery that we now looked at, applied. Question answer 28 now applies both the doctrine of God's creative power and the doctrine of God's comprehensive providence to our lives when it asks, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And I love this about the Heidelberg. Because it doesn't just give us doctrines which would be great anyway, but it says, now, so what? What does it mean for you? Well, that's how every sermon should be, right? Not a theological lecture. There's a difference between a sermon and a theological lecture. You apply it. People want to know, how does this apply to me? How does this help me? My wife's sick. My child's sick. I just lost a loved one. What can I do with this? I need comfort. I need help. I need hope. No more lectures. Give me help from my Father in heaven. And here it is from the Heidelberg Catechism. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they can neither move nor be moved. Now it goes back to question one, right? That not a hair can fall from our head. It's such a wonderful unity, all of it, isn't it? Since we now understand, together with the suffering Job, that God will complete what he appoints for me, we can find peace and tranquility in this fact, even in the fiercest storms, even in the darkest of circumstances. We can be patient in adversity, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us. You see, at the, at the time of the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism, there was plenty of persecution. And many of those who received the Heidelberg Catechism, not only those who wrote, were constantly confronted with possible persecution. And persecution doesn't mean that you get a citation for a thousand dollars or two. That could mean your quick death. Maybe even the death on the stake. You're being roasted to death. They knew a thing or two about adversity. 
But you see, adversity is more than just external persecution. It encompasses all kinds of hardship and difficulty that ever might befall you. On the inside and from the outside. The Christian knows that even in the worst of circumstances, he is still dealing with God's loving fatherly hand. And while our immediate pain and suffering is quite real and not to be minimized ever, we remain patient, knowing that all things work together for good and that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. It is therefore patience and trust that is the only proper response to hardship for a Christian child of God. A humble submission to the wise providence of God, a putting of our hand over our mouth, as Job says, is always the proper response to God's frowning providences. When David was horribly cursed by Shimei, Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. David answers, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? You see, this is the proper response. If God has seen it fit to bring this dark and frowning providence upon my life, who am I to argue with him or against him? James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You could translate patience. And let patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And you can believe me, brothers and sisters, sometimes a pastor asks himself, why does this member of the flock have to suffer so much? And no platitude will do, you know, I'll be praying for you. That's all true. But they want to know. They want to know why. Why so much? Pastor, please explain it to me. Has God forsaken me? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and patience. You want to meet a wise Christian? You want to find a wise brother or sister for advice? Go to those who have suffered a lot. They usually know God the best. Go to the Job's. And ask them for advice. Because it is God's choice instrument. The dark providences. To draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. To wean us off from this world. You know that some people. I've heard people say. In fact I have said it at times. I don't find any joy in this world anymore. You know when you're in the thick of it. I don't find joy in this world anymore. Hallelujah. Find your joy in the Lord. That's how he does it. He brings you to the brink. He brings you to the end of your wits. And then there is nothing but Christ. And you learn to hold on to him and to let go of this world. The 19th century German commentator Otto Telemann writes, 
Life on earth is a school of suffering for every child of God. And in this school, there are three grades. The first grader says, I must suffer this. The right hand of the Most High can still change all things. The second grader says, I will gladly suffer this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the third grader says, I shall rejoice in my suffering, for in it I have the seal for the adoption as a child of God. End of quote. Going right to Hebrews chapter 12. That only children of God are being chastised. Only those are being trained by God through suffering. You shouldn't worry if your suffering is severe. You should worry if there's never any hardship in your life. That's something to worry because he chastises every son whom he adopts. Therefore, trusting patience in the faithful fatherly hand is the only proper response to suffering. And then it says we can be thankful in prosperity. Now, of course, it feels much more pleasant for us to experience prosperity, but it is at least as dangerous as adversity or hardship because it is so tempting not only to forget God over it, but also to ascribe our, all of our prosperity to our own strength and our own skills. We must know at all times that we do not deserve any good in this life. Any form of entitlement mindset is utterly contrary to the Word of God. Our mindset in prosperity must be that of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He knew exactly. He deserved nothing. It was all mercy. Well, now, the original German word in the original form of the Heidelberg Catechism means something a little bit different. The German word Glückseligkeit is in the Heidelberg Catechism. It covers not just prosperity. It, it, it goes much broader than that. It, it covers all kinds of felicity. And of course, you don't have a better word in English. Uh, so prosperity is, is fine. But it's not only prosperity. When we think prosperity, we, we always think money or wealth. But the, the German word Glückseligkeit means much more than that. All that we consider pleasant blessings from the Lord. Therefore, in pleasant times, we must be thankful. Thankful with heart, like Psalm 138, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, my whole being. Thankful with words, Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thankful with hands, Joshua 24.15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Gratitude to God is a wonderful means in the Christian life and it will also increase your contentment 
we have a saying in German, and you allow me to first say it in German. Die Danken werden nicht wanken. And I'm quite proud that I've translated into English and it still rhymes. I hope it still makes sense because it means those who thank will not thank. Does it make sense? You all look rather confused. Literally it means those who thank will not waffle. They will not fall. If you live in gratitude, you're always reminded of the goodness of God. And even in, in difficult times, we'll remember His goodness and you will stand strong. But if you live in discontentment, if you're constantly criticizing the wise providence of God, then you will be like a leaf in the wind, always dependent on the circumstances. Oh, brothers and sisters, how often do we get stuck in circumstances? How often do we get stuck in our present thinking, in our present uh, difficulties? Let me pick up Joseph again. Mistreated and sold by his brothers, slave in Potiphar's household, finally when things looked better, falsely accused and imprisoned, then another silver lining, but soon forgotten by Pharaoh's cupbearer. Years in prison for false accusations. And in Joseph's place, we might have thought, if just I hadn't met that guy who told me where my brothers were. That's when all the ill began. If I hadn't met that guy, I would have never found my brothers, and I could have avoided all of these calamities that have befallen me. That's where we froze the picture, in the prison. But we answer now, as we know the whole story to Joseph, as like through a time machine. That's true, Joseph. If you hadn't met that guy, you probably would have never found your brothers. But then you couldn't have interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And if you hadn't interpreted Pharaoh's dream, you wouldn't have become prime minister in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth on that time. You would have never brought your father's house from Canaan to Egypt. And you could have never said to your brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And after you, your descendants wouldn't have increased into a countless number in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They would have never been enslaved, and Moses would have never come, or he would have never led them out of Egypt to the promised land, which is such a wonderful prophetic picture for our salvation out of the slavery of sin. In Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the whole course of history would have been entirely different Joseph, your 70 relatives would have never come to the land of Goshen. They would probably have starved, including you, in Canaan, in Palestine, during the famine. And that would have been the end of God's people. Thank God that according to his infallible providence, this was never an option. If is never an option for Christians... What would have been is never an option because it could have not been. Because God rules all things with his infinite wisdom and his almighty power. My dear friends, what we learn here is that providence is God's handwriting in history. And it can only be read backwards. And that's how God has set it up for our own good. 
And the Heidelberg Catechism brings it to a conclusion, talking about the future. After all this we have heard, for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. And why? Why can we do this? Why all this hope? Here's the final conclusion. Here's the summary. Here's the crescendo. At the end, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That's God's providence, my dear friends. Let me close by encouraging you with these words from the great Puritan Thomas Boston. Everyone knows what is most pleasant to him, but God alone knows what is most profitable. Amen and amen. Let us pray. O oh God of our providence, Almighty Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have revealed yourself, that we don't have to live without hope, that you tell us about your love, about your power, and about your providence. Oh, Lord, help us to trust you, to walk in your ways, and that if in your providence you have assigned some darker times for us, that we receive them gladly and by faith, that we put our hand on our mouths to be quiet and to trust in the providence of our Father, who loves us enough to even bring hardship upon us in order to sanctify us and to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, help us and help our congregation, especially all those who are suffering in our midst. But may we be good brothers and sisters and care for them and pray for them. And may they have their eyes at all times fixed on Jesus, the author and also the finisher of our faith, in whom we trust and in whose name we pray. Amen.